0: I hope that you're praying for your one. We started yesterday. It's your first time, or if you're new with us, if you haven't been here in a few weeks, I won't explain, don't worry. But I hope that you've started praying for your one. We're already in. Today is day two. So if you have not, there are a couple of ways that you can catch up. One, you can go out and get a prayer guide outside in the lobby, or you can go to mygateway.life. If you type into your browser, mygateway.life, and go to the who's your one card, you can sign up for an email and get an email each day that will be an exact copy of the brochure that you can get a paper copy up here. So it will give you a quick 30-second prayer each day of this month to pray for your one. All right, we're going to look today at maybe the most familiar story in the Bible. I'm guessing somebody's thinking, oh, I don't know anything about the Bible. I'm now embarrassed because I won't even know this story. I bet you do. If you don't know the story, you've heard it talked about before. You may have seen it referenced if you watch the NFL. About 40% of NFL games, there's someone that holds up a sign to the camera. John 3.16. That's what we're talking about this morning. We're going to talk about this incredible, epic interaction between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. I'd love for you to look along with me. If you have a Bible, John chapter 3. It's also on mygateway.life under the sermon card. And it will be on the screen and I'll be reading from the screen. John chapter 3 verses 1 through 18. And let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So if you know the biographies of Jesus, you know that the Pharisees were often opposed to Jesus. But that wasn't universal. There were some who were kind of curious and maybe some who were more than curious. And Nicodemus was probably one of those who was more than curious. He was also a PhD in religious studies and with a specialty in the Old Testament. So he's part of the ruling council. So this is a big deal. And this is an an important, central conversation to our understanding of faith and our understanding of what we're sharing with other people. He came to Jesus at night, probably because he didn't want to be embarrassed to be seen with Jesus in the day. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. And I don't think he's saying that sarcastically. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you. So whenever you see that, very truly, that is in effect Jesus saying, this is a big one. When my kids were little and there was a discipline moment, you know, we would just discipline them. We'd just smack them around. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just trying to step on the toes of all those of you who are overly sensitive. But once in a while, it would be something important. And so when it was, I would actually stoop down and I'd say, buddy, look at me. This is a big one. And they knew we meant business. When Jesus says, very truly, Jesus is saying, this is a big one. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God, remember that, unless they are born again. Wait, what? How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time in their mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, "Very truly, again, this is a big one. I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit." Now, some people take that. We did a baptism this morning at nine o'clock. It was awesome. That's what you missed if you sleep in and come to the eleven o'clock service, you little slackers. But uh, some people think that that water and the Spirit is a reference to baptism and the Holy Spirit. I don't think it is because of the parallel here. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. I think what he's saying is you've got to be born of the water, meaning of your mom, flesh to flesh, but you've also got to be born of the spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Look, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you can't tell where it's come from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. What are you talking about, Nicodemus asked, or how can this be? You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? Very truly, this is a big one, Nicodemus, I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. That's one of the things that Jesus calls himself. And believe it or not, we don't have time to explain this today. But that title, Son of Man, is actually an indication of his divinity. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. This is a reference to an incident in Exodus when Moses, they're out in the wilderness and Moses lifts up a snake and heals all the people. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, letting us know that Jesus already knows what's going to happen to Him. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. You may be seated. Okay, who's your one? This is what we're talking about last two weeks, today and next week. Why? Why are we doing this? Who's your one? Well, two weeks ago we said, this is what we were made for. This is what we were created for. This is what we were designed for, to be an impact, to be an influence on others, to have our lives make an impact on others for good and for God. We were made for that. Today, we kind of see a second reason for talking about who's your one, don't we? This is what Jesus modeled for us. John chapter 3, here is the Savior of the world talking to one person. John chapter 4, Savior of the world talking to one woman over and over again, and he's still doing that today. The Savior of the world is still, through us, talking to others one-on-one. That's what Jesus did. Now, some of you have heard the starfish illustration, but just to punctuate this point, I want you to see this video. One day, A man was walking along the beach when he noticed a boy picking up starfish and throwing them into the ocean. Approaching the boy, he asked, Excuse me, but what are you doing? The boy replied, Throwing starfish back into the ocean. The sun is rising and the tide is going out. If I don't throw them back, they'll die. The man laughed to himself and said, But there's too many starfish on this beach. You can't possibly make a difference. After listening politely, the boy bent down, picked up another starfish, and threw it into the ocean. Then turning to the man, he said, I made a difference to that one. So you can't read the biographies of Jesus and miss the principle of one. The savior of the world, frequently, consistently, insistently, focusing his attention and spending his time on one and calling us to do the same. All right, we learn at least six fascinating and critically important truths from Jesus' interaction with the Pharisee Nicodemus. Six truths from this interaction that we got to get. This is one of those messages that occasionally on Sunday morning, if you're new with us, I will say in the key moment in a sermon, I'll say, hey, if you miss everything else, don't miss this. This is the, if you miss everything else, don't miss this sermon. Number one, we learned that Jesus' invitation to us is an invitation to join the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is Jesus' main theme in his teaching. That's why he brings it up here in an odd kind of way with Nicodemus. Jesus' main teaching point was not prayer. Prayer is critically important. His main teaching point was not love. Love is absolutely important. His main teaching theme was not faith. And faith, we know how important faith is. Jesus' main teaching theme was the kingdom of God. And when he uses this, he means to be in the kind of relationship with God the kind of relationship with God in which I submit my life fully to God's governance. I give God control over my life. I'm ordered, arranged, and governed by God. This is more than mere belief. We'll have more to say about that in a minute. Jesus' invitation to us is an invitation to join the kingdom of God. Second thing we learn is that To accept Jesus' invitation, in other words, to be part of the kingdom, you must be born again. Listen to what he says in verse 3. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This means that we are radically altered. We are reordered. We are re-engineered. It is a re-engineering experience, and it ushers us into a relationship with God. Head, heart, will, all of me re-engineered so that I am in a connected relationship with God. I've used the illustration before. We think of our religious experience as taking on some new software to the system or adding an application to the system, but it's really a brand new operating system. The computer is reordered. It operates in a completely different way by different rules. This is something that those of you, by the way, who are from liturgical backgrounds, I think you sometimes miss, and you, you actually think this is weird, of those who are more lowbrow denominations or lowbrow faith expressions. Those of you who, especially if you're from Episcopalian or Catholic background, you look at uh, the kind of church that I grew up in, or even a church like Gateway, and you think, you know, occasionally you think, nice, it's kind of warm, that past the peace thing was weird, but that was kind of good. And but those people can be a little bit weird. They go kind of overboard. And I think, in fact, this may be the thing that we get most right. That it's a real living, bone-shattering, mind-changing, life-changing experience with God. That's what we're invited into. Years ago, before we moved here, I pastored a church in Boston. It was an inner-city church, and we saw a lot of dramatically changed lives and crazy stories like we've had here at Gateway. We had this one woman. She came into my office one day. Her name was Beth, and Beth was in deep trouble. And, of course, you know, I'm a holy, great man of faith. Beth, this is, her life is a made-for-television movie. She had gotten in trouble, had broken into a home. This kind of thing happens a lot in Boston. Our home was broken into twice, and the police never did anything. They didn't even come. But she happened to break into a cop's house. And didn't know it. So the police came dusted for fingerprints. They did the whole nine yards. They found Beth. She was with a group of people. So they tell Beth, Look, we, we will not throw the book at you. You you've got one to five in prison. We will not throw the book at you if you return all the stuff and if you rat on all the people that were with you. Well, she returned what she could get her hands on, but all of the really nice stuff was already pawned. They couldn't get it back, and she didn't want to rat on her friends. So Beth is in trouble, except the FBI steps in. I'm not kidding. This is a true story. The FBI steps in and finds out that Beth has a 13-year-old daughter, a 13-year-old daughter that knows nothing about Beth's life, doesn't know that Beth was a drug addict. She's in middle school. She's, I mean, she's a crazy kid, but she's kind of a normal kid. And Beth doesn't want her kid to know anything about her life, anything about this part of her life. So the FBI finds out that Beth used to date and the, the daughter's father was a dirty Boston cop. I told you, it's a made-for-TV movie. So the FBI gets in touch with Beth. This cop was really dirty. I think the FBI believed that he... So the FBI finds out that Beth knows this guy. He evidently was heavily involved in the heroin traffic out of New York and throughout New England. So they want to get him and they've been after him for years. The FBI comes to Beth and says, we'll get you off all charges if you'll wear a wire. Help us find some evidence against this guy." So Beth agrees and she wears a wire. I think someone tipped the guy off because she tries a number of times on phone calls. she's with him a number of times he won't ever you remember that time we went to New York what was that guy's name uh, Beth I don't know what you're talking about so he never admits anything so the Cops abandon her. I mean, the FBI abandons her. She's really got nothing. Finally, she gets a lawyer and presses them. Okay, we'll show up in court and we'll get you off. So she comes into my office one day. She's never been to church before. She comes into my office. I don't know who she is. Sit down. My life is a mess holy guy, super faithful. Beth, God has got this. You give your life to God. Give him five years. Give him control of your life. Become part of the kingdom of God. You won't recognize your life. Jesus can do it. Beth, she tells me her story, and I say, Jesus can't do that. (laughs) He cannot, he can't help you out of that. I'm sorry. So we hear her story. I talk to Beth, and she becomes a Christian in my office. And it's one of those, it's the real deal. I mean, I sensed God's presence, and I was overwhelmed. She was overwhelmed. She's crying. I I lead her to pray, you know, God, I've made a mess of my life. I've done my best, and this is where it got me. I've involved myself in a a self-salvation project. I've tried to work it out myself, and I want to give it to you because I've made a mess, and here, this mess is yours. And I told her, I believe Jesus says, yes, I've been waiting. I'll take that mess and give you something glorious. So she prays that prayer. Beth and I are awesome, and I give her, like a holy guy, give her assurances, God's got this. Beth, he's going to take care of everything. She goes to court. The FBI does not show up. And they sentence her on the spot to a year in prison. Don't let her go home. She can't leave jail. She can't leave the court. They take her right to prison. On the way out, she's dropping every profanity she knows at me and at God. What am I going to do about my daughter? Our youth pastor, Dorothea, goes and gets her daughter out of school, takes care of her daughter, finds a home for her. Beth is just really angry, doesn't want to see us, but our youth pastor goes to see her twice a week. Eventually, her heart starts to soften again. She remembers what God did. She starts a Bible study in prison. Sometime later, a couple of those women got out and came to our church that were in Beth's Bible study. A year later, she gets out. Her life is completely different. She finds out that because she was incarcerated, the state of Massachusetts will pay for her to get a flower license And this is what she's always wanted to do and never had the opportunity. She goes to school for free, gets a flower's license, she owns a flower shop. God completely changed her life. In five years, it was unrecognizable to her. One time in church, after all of this, Beth came every Sunday. She was our favorite worshiper, she knew how much she'd been forgiven and how God has straightened her life out. We had an awesome Sunday one Sunday. Beth comes up to me after shaking my hand, hugging me. That was really, really awesome. She said, you know, I was listening to one of those pastors on the uh, radio this morning, televangelist from the 90s. Many of you will remember them. And he said all this stuff. She said, you know what? I'm really glad that we're not one of those born-agains. And I said, Beth, not only am I born-again, so are you, by the way. It's a life-altering Bone-shattering, reordering, changing of the operating system, experience with God. And that's all it is, but it's everything. Third thing we learned is this rebirth is a spiritual experience. Verses 5 and 6, he says, I tell you the truth, or very truly, this is a big one. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water, and the Spirit, flesh, gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit, gives birth to Spirit. This is not about knowledge. Nicodemus had knowledge. This is not about upbringing. Nicodemus had upbringing. This is not about religious observance. Nicodemus had religious observance. This is a spiritual encounter that changes head, heart, and will. Fourth thing we learn is this rebirth is determined by the Spirit of God. Verses 7 and 8. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This is not determined by my choice. This is not determined by my upbringing. This is a movement of the Spirit. This experience is determined by the Spirit of God working in you. Ours is not a self-salvation project. It is determined by the Spirit. We try to save ourselves in many ways. Money, relationships, work, even religion. But only a relationship with God, determined by the Spirit, can truly save us. By the way, this tends to be something that lowbrow Christians like us don't always get right. We always think it's about our choosing, and it's me and Jesus, and and I chose Jesus. Won't you choose Jesus? This is a movement of the Spirit, the spiritual experience, determined by the Spirit. Fifth, the centerpiece of this spiritual experience is a newfound Belief in Jesus. Listen to verses 12 through 16. Come on. I've I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Okay, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this is not mere belief. In other words, This is not an intellectual assent to an idea. Over 90% of Americans say they believe in God. That's not what we're talking about. This is a whole life trust, all in dependence. Mind, heart, will turned over a citizen now of a new country, the kingdom of God. I've used this illustration many times. Some of you have heard it before. I'll tell you what biblical belief is. I want you to imagine this is a great chasm. This is just a giant hole. There's no carpet squares here. Giant hole. And we're going to stretch a tightrope from one side of the chasm to the other. From here to the soundboard in the back where Lance is. Lance is, in reality, an awesome person and incredibly coordinated. So Lance comes to us. We're all up here on this side of the chasm. Lance comes to us and he says, I, Lance... I'm going to walk across this tightrope, no guide wire. The wind is blowing, the rope is moving. Most of us are thinking, no, don't do that. This is going to be a big splat. How many of you think that I can do it? Four or five of you are a little nuts, and you, yay! You kind of want to see something happen. Lance steps out onto the rope. Slowly, he makes his way across. We're kind of excited. He turns around, he comes back, he makes it. woo We're cheering now. Now, Lance says... I'm going to take this bicycle, and I'm going to ride it across this road to the other side. How many do you think I can? Of those, there's 14 of us who are now convinced. 14 of us begin to applaud. The rest of us are thinking, quit while you're ahead. Lance hops on the bicycle and begins to pedal, and he makes his way all the way across, and he comes all the way back. Thunderous applause from Gateway at that point. Yay! Lance says how many of you now because he's getting super excited this is what Lance does how many of you now think that I can put a 200 pound bag on the front of the bicycle and ride all the way across and back and we're getting caught up in Lance's excitement plus we believe now and we're all in so there's like 75 percent of us are yay Lance 25 percent of us are a little smarter and we're thinking look you did it with a bike this is altogether different he throws a 200 pound bag on the bike Travels all the way crossing and back. We're all in. We're nuts. How many of you now think that I could do that with a person on the front of the bike and 100% all of us are, yes, Lance? And then Lance says, who will be the person? That's biblical faith. Getting on the front of the bicycle, going all in. It's not an idea. The final thing we learned is to not have Jesus as the centerpiece results in condemnation. Verse 17 and 18 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now, there are 39 of you, at least, thinking, that just sounds so exclusive. Let me say a few things about that. Number one, just because it's exclusive doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. It is exclusive. Doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. Second thing I'll say is, Stephen Prothrow is a professor of religion at Boston University. He wrote a book a number of years ago that's used in a number of religious... Programs. It's called God is Not One. God is not, O-N-E, one. He writes in that, in the introduction to that, very pointedly. He's not a Christian, by the way. This is an examination of the eight major religions in the world. He writes very pointedly that all religions are exclusive. And to suggest that they cannot or should not be exclusive is an offense to all religions. The major religions recognize that they have very different concepts of God, concepts that are in many ways mutually exclusive. They cannot all be right. It makes me think of an analogy that I bet some of you have heard before that's often used in discussions about this kind of thing. We're told to imagine someone going up and they see an elephant, only they don't know it's an elephant, they're blind, and they go up and they grab the trunk. And they say, oh, this thing, this truth is floppy and it's kind of smaller and round and it has a hole in the end and it moves up and down. And someone else goes up and grabs the elephant's leg and says, no, it's big and it's like a stump and has a bunch of little skin on it. And someone else is underneath the elephant. And they say, no, this thing is huge. It's got gigantic girth. I can't even get my arms around it. And what we're told is, see, none of them have the whole truth. They all have only part of the truth. The real truth is it's all of those things. It's an elephant. We're all going for the same thing. We just have different parts of it. Nobody is holding the whole truth except for the all-wise, all-knowing, objective observer that knows it's an elephant and gives us the illustration. They're just as exclusive. All of you are wrong. We're right because it's really all of these things. If you believe anything, then what you believe is exclusive. You can't get away from exclusivity. Having said that, I want us to all acknowledge that what we're talking about right now is above our pay grade. I went to seminary 109 years ago. And Billy Graham was on the board of directors of the seminary that I went to. And he came one time to gordon that's where I went to seminary. He came one time to speak, and afterwards he had a question-and-answer session with a group of seminarians, and don't ever let people who are in seminary ask you questions because they don't really have questions. They just want to raise their hand and show how much they know. But this one guy had a really good question. He raised his hand, and he said, you know, I think that... Is it suggested by what we believe that non-Christians are going to hell? This is Billy Graham. He said, I don't know. That's above my pay grade and my understanding. I know there are people before Jesus who God accepts. And there are people after Jesus who may be accepted on those same kind of grounds. I just know that because of what Jesus said, this is very, very serious business and the stakes are very, very high. Jesus came to put an end to our trust in our own self-salvation projects. He came to offer us a real relationship with God, a relationship that moves us beyond the condemnation of God. And he has left us with the task of offering that to others in his name. There is literally nothing we do that's more important than that. The stakes are very, very high. And I'm with Billy Graham. I don't want to take a chance on the one in my life not knowing. This is why we're talking about one the stakes are incredibly high. So if you haven't started, begin today. And let's pray for the rest of this month for our one. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know what you've done in our hearts today, each of us, but I sense that you have moved and, and stirred. And I pray that you would seal that, that you would massage it in deeply. Father, for any of us here this morning who do not have a real connection with you, a real relationship with you, we've never been re engineered. We've had religion, but we've not had you. I ask in Jesus' name that you would move in our heart right now, that we would be brought to salvation that we would be stirred by an encounter with you in the deepest part of our being, even right now, that you're quickening our heart and our mind, that we would at long last surrender to you everything. Father, for those of us who are engaged in the business of trying to follow you, we want to separate out this next month as a special time. This is not just like another June. We're going to, by faith, bring before you every day the name of someone who's far from you and deep in need. We're going to bring their name to you knowing that you want to move, and we're going to join you. We're going to ask you to move in their heart, move on their behalf, and show us what you're doing so that we know how to participate. God, for those of us who have not yet decided who our one is, I pray that you would stir our minds and hearts. Lord, this is serious business, and we want to take it seriously. In the strong name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Good to have you. Go in peace.